Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for our life together. Give us all the good that we can have in this family. Shared faith and knowledge, we'd ask that you would uh, bless us each with what we each bring. In your son's name, amen. We're in Matthew 9. We're in Matthew 9, um, which is a very, uh, one of the synoptic stories that uh, is told of Christ also in, I think, Mark 5. Uh, let's see. Luke, uh, Luke 5 and, and, and Mark 2, I think. Yeah, Mark 2. Um, so you can look back and forth at the different renderings of how the conversation goes. Uh, what was, I was drawn to was the passage uh, in um, that chapter where there's a question on fasting. And then it's the passage about the old wineskins and the new wine, old wineskins, new cloth, old garment. I knew I hadn't been on the passage in quite a while, in most cases at least seven years, in this passage ten. So it was even pre this building. So I wanted to read through the section, and it was... Uh, always preceded by the same circumstance of the calling of, uh, of Matthew and preceded by that um, by some miracles, some healings. So I wanted to figure out what, where was this going? What was the gospel writer in each case going after? As I looked at Matthew, it seemed to stand out in a certain way. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. This is right after the healing of the Gadarene demoniac, Legion. And they had begged him to leave the neighborhood, it says in the last verse of chapter 8. And behold, they brought him, to him a paralytic lying on his bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Which is really cold. Friends carrying in this crippled person. You're supposed to see cripple. Oh yeah, that's the problem. I don't think Jesus looks at us that way. He's, 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 he's not here. He did not come to earth to fix the cripples. He did not die that the cripples wouldn't be. He healed cripples, but he didn't come to fix the physical damage of this earth. Someday it will all be fixed because of Christ, but again, his incarnation... His love for man is on the most important thing. And that's what he gets at here when he says, Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your heart? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. 
but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So what just landed on us there? It's another miracle story. Miracles are always... Jesus is doing miracles left and right. This is early in his ministry. And we're sort of just like men everywhere. We realize what's easier to say. Your sins are forgiven is easier to say than take up your bed and walk. No one can check to see if the sins were forgiven. No one can measure. There's no dipstick. There's no gauge to read. The guy either walks or he doesn't. But Christ is actually reversing it in his mind, saying, to know, for you to know that I have the authority to do the other, because the forgiveness of sins is, is not... Christ is not looking at it to see whether or not it happened. Because with forgiveness of sins, you can only be forgiven by the person you hold the, the, who holds your debt. Right? You, you don't, you know, if you lie to your mother, and you, you can't go to your neighbor and say, you know, I, I'm really sorry, but I lied to my mother. The neighbor's looking at you like, okay, too much information. But who cares? You didn't lie to me. Why are you apologizing to me? The blasphemy is not that forgiveness isn't good or forgiveness is hard to grant. Ever struggle with that when somebody says they're sorry and you go, okay, you're forgiven. Sometimes we feel that. But the blasphemy that the Jews are seeing in it is Sins are against God. What are you doing forgiving them? You're, you're just the neighbor. You're just the person who doesn't have anything to do with this. But Christ wants to prove to them that he has the authority to do it. Now, the primary thing that we're looking at with this passage is... Uh, the nature of our faith, the nature of our religion, um, and how we get off the beam in what Christianity is about here 2,000 years later. Some time has passed, let's just say. Things could have changed. But I want you to know that in Christ's ministry, the forgiveness of sins is a pretty big deal and it's a pretty big claim that Jesus makes when he does so. Now, we treat sometimes saying you're sorry to God, Lord, forgive my sins, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We can run through that stuff easily. 
In Christianity, you believe something about a Jewish guy that he has the right to forgive your sins. You call on the name of the Lord. He died while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. You've heard the, you've heard the verses. For 2,000 years we've heard the verses. We're making a really, really big claim that this Jewish guy dead by the hands of the Romans 2,000 years ago has the authority to forgive sins. And your relationship to that is not creedal. We talk about it in the creeds, perhaps, but it's not, or ought not, be creedal. You ought to be the guy, the paralytic they hauled in, who got up and went home, who was both forgiven of his sins and healed of his infirmities. And in the first measure of the Christian religion, people had a couple of responses. When they saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. That this guy, because that's what Christ said, do you know that I have the authority to forgive sin? I'm going to do this. They recognized that question. They saw it, were afraid, and glorified. Now I'm telling you that those things in the story because something's coming up the page that I want you to apply to this. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew... I was sort of imagining Matthew writing this paragraph. Sitting at the tax office. Don't forget to do your taxes. April 15th is coming up. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now he doesn't have the same sort of exchange like, to prove to you I have the authority to tell you to come after me. He just does it. Nobody questions. Nobody stops and goes, hey, what are you doing forgiving sins? That's what he did in the first story. Matthew doesn't go, hey, I can't leave my work. He gets up and he follows it. The authority to expect disciples, when he calls you, he has the authority to expect you to follow him. Now, this is where things get a little different, or well, a number of places it gets different, but one of, one of the things I thought of, <coughs> uh, Matthew gets up to follow Jesus Christ, and it's not, it's not a following out to the desert places where they would sit in meditation and get more religious. The performance of this faith, which, what I want you to think about, is not what the, the faith seems to look like to you, or how you, but how the Christian faith actually is. Last night we were talking, uh, Daniel and Nick Rozier and I and some other people were talking about uh, 
how many things that we get mixed up in because of the tradition of the church. And we have a view of what Christianity is that was just sort of handed to you. And it may say all true things, but there's a way of us being wrong about all these wonderful true things. That's what we're kind of looking at. The performance of this following ends up at a party full of sinners. And he rose and followed him. And as he sat at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. This is not all these, you know, straight-laced kids who want to get deeper into the religion and so they find someone teaching a harder, deeper, more, compel- you know, more compelling set of standards. Jesus is doing something else. Not only is he forgiving sinners, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is one of those aggressive comments of Christ. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We know from these two stories, the story of Matthew being called and the story of the paralytic being healed, that Christ wants you to think of your faith, the nature of it, as the forgiveness of sins, and in that, that you've come out of sin into the pursuit of Jesus Christ, you've become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that you know, one of the first things you know is this religion is there to save sinners. This religion is there to heal your moral depravity, your profligacy. Because, and it's important to Christ that the Pharisees be told You know, maybe you ought to think a bit more about the phrase, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's out of Hosea 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because what is sacrifice? Sacrifice is doing the right thing your religion asked you to do next. There's nothing wrong with the sacrifice. But people end up thinking that the sacrifice is more important than the forgiveness. Your religion, whatever it contains, is more important than this um, work that Christ has the authority to do. And you believe. I mean, that's what, I mean, you go, this is a Christian church. You came to a building with a steeple on it. You should have given you a giveaway. But uh, you desire Christianity. Part of this is you following Christ in your own mind. What I want to encourage you to do is to recognize at the, at the, at the base of your claims what the, the thing is and what kind of relationship you have. You say, well, I already knew that. Say, Kevin, I became a Christian when I was seven. You know, in a believing church with believing parents. What's your, what's your deal? Christians are really good at making really true things not function. 
really wonderful true things not seem to show up. I, I am a very, a very pessimistic um, reader of the religious circumstance today. If you were to ask me what percentage of the nation was truly, truly passed from death to life into the joy of God, going to heaven on the last day, I'd give it 5%. Okay? You say, well, that's kind of optimistic of it. Okay, well, well okay, you can, you can go lower if you want. I have no trouble going lower. I have trouble going higher. But if there were 5% people who didn't have their Christianity hamstrung by any number of things, well, I mean, obviously a big thing is sin in your life. We're not talking about that this morning, but if you have sin in your life, get rid of it. Take it to the Lord, get forgiveness. Sin in your life. The other part of which, I mean, the church is largely dumb as a stump. They're being taught by people who don't know the right hand from their left. The blind are leading the blind. So bad teaching. But you know, the worst kind of flaw will be that which looks like it's even more into this religion of ours than others. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. Now, I don't know. We, we don't do Ash Wednesday here. We don't do Lent. I don't think you go to hell for Lent. I gave up heaven for Lent. Some people fast, some people don't. I don't know why you fast. But Christ seems to tie the, the fasting of John's disciples and the Pharisees into a kind of fasting that says, you know, it's one where you're fe- when you feel you're hung out to dry. So like when they were fasting because of the destruction of the temple in Ezra. And for 70 years they had fasted. Not constantly. An annual fast. Different annual fast where they held something up in commemoration. People can do fasting for different reasons. This is, he's saying, you know, my disciples don't fast because they're having a really good time. There'll be a point where they won't. And they will mourn then. Doesn't tell you what that point, other than he will be taken, the bridegroom will be taken away. Obviously something shifts. Then they will fast. But what he recognizes is that you followers of John, this is John the Baptist he's talking about, and the followers of the Pharisees who were sincere guys for the most part. He wants to let them know that when I have the authority to forgive sins, And when the following of me is wrapped up in healing sinners by forgiveness. And the way we function in it isn't one of religious observations that shows sincerity and sacrifice. Because I desire mercy more than sacrifice. 
In a sense, that was what a fast ends up being. You sacrifice something, give up something for Lent. I'd like to have people go, I vow to be holy for Lent. Oh, not so much. I'd rather give up Coke. I'd rather give up Facebook. There's something different, and your religion personally is supposed to be reading differently than other religions to other religious people who are in the same ballpark, the same camp. The disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees are in the same camp with Jesus. They're Jews trying to be faithful to the living God. But there's this difference of behavior. One is uh, the followers of Jesus go to non-Christian parties. We had a great time last night, by the way. Um, a lot of believers there. This is in a bar. My pastor, the bishop's wife, singing in a bar. And there were sinners there, a good number of them. And there were a lot of believers there, a good number of them. And we had a good time. And is that something that says, you know, that's the problem with all souls, is the pastor goes out to the bars. Or he hang, would hang out with non-believers. Well, whether I do it right or correctly or not, Jesus would do the same. Not because I'm trying to encourage you to have no sense of religious limits. I want to tell you what the religious action is supposed to be. Because we're about forgiveness of sins, we're about the sick. And even when we're hanging out with the religious people, we're looking at it with our eyes narrowed going, I wonder how sick he is. I wonder what's wrong. That might be a little icky, because some people, some of you do it just fine, and I don't want to look at you that way, you come over to the house. No, honest. You ever feel like that when you go see my dad? I want to make an appointment with my dad, but I don't know how to look like I'm not a sinner. Dick Rozier was telling me, the first time he met him, he, dad started to evangelize him. And he had to go, no, 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 I'm already a Christian. Okay, we're going to make those mistakes. We're about forgiveness. We're not just about their forgiveness. We're about our forgiveness. We want to say forgiveness, my own, it's a great thing that my God was a Jew 2,000 years ago who can forgive my sins at his will and his act on the cross. That's really great. I'm going to follow him. I got forgiven. I'm going to follow him. Like Matthew, a tax collector, the worst of all worst. And the Pharisees were concerned that you didn't do the same religious actions. And he says, yeah, it's because we're kind of different. We have a different root of joy. We have a different point of connection. It is so different, we can't really function together. And this is where the illustration, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. 
If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins. And so both are preserved. And then in another one of the synoptics it says, and no one having had the old wine wants the new wine, because the old wine is better. Which makes people think that Jesus is recommending the old wine. No, it's what we do because everything we come to face in religion has been on the ground as religion since the beginning of religion. Why are you hanging out with tax collectors? Those are bad people. All religions. Why are you hanging out with the unclean? And why aren't you doing the stuff, the religious stuff that we do in whatever religion it is? People love the old wine. Because that's how we get around this. This is, I'm not a, I'm not a good writer like, uh, like C.S. Lewis is, and when he does screw tape, he read screw tape. Um, it's amazing what Lewis will come up as possible sin paths. I mean, it all, it's none of his, just take this bottle of vodka and get drunk. Let's cheat on our spouses. Let's, you know, it's not that. It's, it's little fights in the family. How can you twist that victory in sin to become a temptation in sin? This is where we might not be as sophisticated as we need to be. Jesus Christ bought, brought new wine. He wasn't going to put it in Judaism. Jesus Christ was new cloth. It wasn't just going to be sewn on a rip in the old religion. Was going to patch it up and make it last longer. It's not a new covenant administration of the old covenant. Both are preserved. We could look back at Judaism and be wonderfully blessed by it, but it is that and this is this. Jesus doesn't want to put them together. Now, our Christianity, as new wine, is supposed to be maturing alone as new wine, as the kind of wine it is. That it is a wine based on your forgiveness. It is a wine based on you following, like Matthew, Jesus Christ. How do we use this to get around it? We turn Christianity into old wineskins. Oh no, some people might still be, oh no, we're not blending it with Judaism. That would be putting the new wine in the old wineskins. We're going to take our 2,000 year old wine and relate to it as if it were the old wine and old wineskins. Our faith is not, this is the danger. Rust. Uh, uh, I thought of it, I, I think I have the words here, uh, where is it, where, where was it, right? halfway up, after the misspelling of importance, improtence, the improtence of lichen, not to lichen unto something, but you know, Tolkien lichen, we saw the movies, every rock had lichen on it, every sculpture had lichen on it, Every ancient gate of ancient city had lichen on it. Every armor somewhat scuffy and dented. Some people really like patina. 
What is patina? You see, like, uh, oh, I, uh, Tim uh, McGarry years ago, I had some new brass light fixture, real shiny, and he came up with something, brought me something, it was a, a liquid you put on it, and it would go, boom, tarnish fast. Because what, what, what do we want to see when we walk into an old home? We want to see, oh, look, it's special because how old it is. I bought these at Ernst. They were shiny this morning. They're not shiny anymore. I'm lying to you. That's, we like to see things old for a reason. Because old makes, for a separate subject than what we're talking about, we think old makes it more true, more. And that's what, that's what the Catholics would say to the Protestants in the 1500s. Where was your religion before, <coughs> before Luther? Like, you know, what if you believe something new right now? You know, I sort of figured out something from the scriptures and I've never heard of anyone believing it before. You feel a little nervous? Because the argument's going to come up. Where in the creeds is this? Who has ever agreed with you? Ever. We like, because we want our religion shored up in truth, we think that the longer it lasts, the more true it becomes. Now, there's not like a crime about that. That's a notion that just, you can say, well, it's really old. It must have been well built. But we forget this is how it turns, that, that notion, which is just fine to ha have, that you like an old-looking church building and you like pews instead of folding chairs, um, whatever it is, where you don't want to go with this is thinking that the faith itself is something you stand apart from and merely through the affirmation of the creeds affirm what they believed 2,000 years ago. Even if it's absolutely true, what you affirm. Because this is about sin and forgiveness and following Jesus Christ. The wine's got to be new in you all the time. Every generation, new wine is made in people. We're not making a wine in a, uh, a substance called the church that turns into an old wineskin with all the right labels and all the right you know, grapes. Because when Christ says, you know, there's a reason my disciples don't fast, is because they're happy. What you believe is going on in your life, what you're encountering is go as going on in your life, is going to affect the religion you live. The kind of practice. We try to encourage you never to think of church this morning or any morning as something you're supposed to go to. We'd much always rather have you here because you love the fellowship of the saints. You love the saints themselves. You love the word, you love singing the praises of God, you love, well you can't love the coffee really, but we um, love the cocoa. I suppose we could love the coffee because it does say love your enemies. It's better. It's much better now. 
since Andrew and Paul got a hold of it. It used to be worse. We are here because we're celebrating what is true of our religion. Our God who lives today, didn't just live 2,000 years ago, who lives today listening for your prayer when you prayed to him and his father for, for the forgiveness of sins and he said yes and forgave you. You were in the bridegroom moment. He's in town. The following of Jesus Christ, like Matthew, you got up and he said, follow me. And you said, I can't imagine why I'm doing this, but this seems like where I want to go for all my answers. You're in a moment of, as Paul describes it, of rejoicing. Compelled by all sorts of things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. What kind of religion are you going to live? Well, one, you're going to be difficult for the religious people. Because the religious people will be saying, why don't you fast like we do? The religious people will ask why you're hanging out with those people. He said, well, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And I was one of those sinners. And I'm following Christ in this. And I can understand that you can make old wineskins out of a new doctrine, a doctrine that is still saving people today and making rejoicing Christians today, and then trying to convince them because you're saying the same thing. The creed says the same thing as you experienced, and they're just asking you very subtly to turn yourself into an old wineskin where your relationship to it isn't you know I'm not fasting because I am in the joy of the Lord. Thank you very much. One of the places I realized this years ago, we used to join with other churches for a Good Friday service and the various pastors would participate. I can remember Leslie and I coming back from one going, you know, that just doesn't seem right. Doctrinally, Jesus, yeah, dying on Good Friday, okay, fine. But the whole service was one, like, it wasn't done. It was, we're going we're gonna to play act his death again and the misery of his death as if it wasn't true that he was raised. Why, am I, why would I ever pretend, for the sake of a weekend, working out in a little dramatic fashion, so I can say he is risen on Sunday, I go pretend like my Lord just died. Jesus is raised. Sins are forgiven. He's there to be followed. It's sometimes easier for us to say um, the Apostles' Creed, which has all the true things in it, than for us to say, I've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. And now I live no longer for myself, but I live for Jesus Christ. Because people start to go, you kind of mean this personally, really, don't you? And people who personally really mean their religion, eh, we'd much rather have it be in an acceptable wine cellar with the right age of bottles, 
Oh, you want to be sure that you have the right grapes. You want to be sure that the religion inside the bottle is exactly what the Bible teaches about our religion. But you can't ignore the effect of the bridegroom being with you. There was a time when the bridegroom was taken away. I mean, they crucified him. There was a Good Friday that was the Good Friday they killed him. But then, three days later, he was raised, and, and that, that flipped him out for a little bit. But then he went away again to heaven after a few weeks. And then they had to wait again. And the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And then Katie barred the door. The religion was great. The religion was, you have been given these things. Do you want to fast because it's kind of really hot right now for Christians to be fasting? And when you find some evangelical church who doesn't have a liturgical bone in their body doing Ash Wednesday, you know it's all a matter of trend because they're trying to find the right, you know, the right thing that the young people are really into. And the pastor has a knit cap that sits on the back of his head. And they do Ash Wednesday because both of those are really cool right now. You want to be forgiven. You want to know what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You want to know why you eat with the non-believers. And why you don't think it's dangerous to eat with non-believers. Oh, I wouldn't want to eat with non-believers. They might have a bad effect. Hold it. You're supposed to be here as an effect to non-belief. You're here to, later on in the chapter, he talks about uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What this religion is about, it needs us forgiven. It needs us following Christ. It needs us having friends who are non-believers, who are hurting, so we can offer this following of Christ and this forgiveness of sins to them. So what does your religion look like? Is it the addition of all true things in a creedal formulation, even if it's the one you wrote out of the Bible? Or were you forgiven? Are you following Christ? What is the state of your rejoicing? So what is the state of your religion? What do you do? We understand it's the idea that you know, Christ conveys is you don't put these things together. So what you have is going to be set apart. What's it look like as this wine matures? What is it shaping up to be? It's a, um, not an often seen thing. I, I want to encourage, it's something I've been thinking about recently and talking to my dad about. Um, you, know, you, you know what I, hobby horses I get on about the New Covenant and about not being churchy and, and whatever else. I want to set people free from the Christian religion so they can live for Christ. Because those are amazing people. You want to meet those people. You want to read their biographies. And those biographies just become part of the wine cellar that the old wineskins are in of the old wine called Christianity. Because 
Nobody is saying, I want to live like George Mueller. I want to live like R.C. Chapman. I want to walk in the light day to day, ministering this forgiveness, this following of Jesus Christ. Not being about sacrifice, but about mercy. Not being about fasting and religious observances, but rejoicing, having the faith that saves me change how I function in my day. How I function in the church. Do you come here with some sort of absolution on the mind, some sort of forgiveness of sins on the mind? Or do you come here and sing horribly, because some of you do, but sing horribly and loudly because he's your Lord. When the demon had been cast out, and I jumped a number of verses, I cut out a whole bunch of uh, very quick uh, miracle stories that building up of how people are reacting to Christ here in chapter 9. Verse 33, and when the demon had been cast out, the dumb man spoke and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. The Pharisees said, cast out demons by the prince of demons. Now that's an antagonism, and that's an approval. I think we should be in the first group. But we've managed to kill Christianity so that it's no longer, never, has anything like this been seen in Israel. Oh yeah, we don't have Jesus walking, raising the dead around town here. But for everyone who is converted, we have Jesus forgiving sins, changing lives, people following him. Since sins are an immediate problem, they are not a creedal problem. You know, I don't like corporate confession. Some churches have corporate confession. We didn't sin together, folks. You sin by yourself. Confess it by yourself. Don't try to get away with some way of sliding it under the church door. We have ways of turning it into old wine. Have your life be something people go, I just can't. I go to so-and-so's house for dinner. I, I don't know how they do it. They're so, they're so nice. Their kids are so obedient. They're, they loved us. We've never seen anything like this. And you want the religious to be telling bad stories about you. I think it's a cult. Make the religious want to call you a cult. Okay? That's my advice. Don't be a cult. Make them want to call you a cult. Is that going to be the last sentence on the tape when somebody is listening? He wants to start a cult. <laughs> Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Thank you for giving us such a cause for rejoicing in the forgiveness of sin. Such a cause for rejoicing in the following of your son, learning what your mercies are about and how they touch our lives and how, how much goodness can be enjoyed and how hard it is to make it work with other religious expressions, even of the people who believe the same thing. Or help us live lives that want other, causes other Christians to want to follow you too. 
In your son's name we pray. Amen.